Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. My name is Noah, you probably know me best as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I make 12-tone, and today we're going to be talking about live music. And we didn't, like, super plan this out. As opposed to usual, when we super plan everything out. (laughs) Of course, very detailed, normally, this podcast. But I assume we're talking more about, like, concerts and shows and, like, Times where you go somewhere specific to listen to a band or an artist play and not like, you know, going to a party and there's a guy there with a guitar yeah, playing yeah. Wonderwall or like a restaurant with like a jazz combo in the corner or something. Yeah, no, like like I agree with that specifically kind of like concerts, festivals, you know, those those sorts yeah. of things. I think that's generally what people think of when they think of live music. Like, I don't know that yeah. there's that many people that if you said like, what what comes to mind when you say live music, they'd think a busker, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there is an extent to which that is, you know, part of... It, it depends where you are. I, I think, you know, living in certain cities, that is a part of the atmosphere. And I, like, I, I don't know, I, I lived in Hollywood for a while, and so those sorts of things aren't, like, everywhere in Hollywood, partly because they try and... Hollywood is complicated. I don't need to get into Hollywood, but... Um, but you you do see see buskers and you have you have this sort of like attitude I don't know attitude is maybe the wrong word but it becomes a part of the background and I think more the distinction I want to make is sort of between background live music and foreground yes, live music yeah. right like when you go to a concert you are there to hear someone perform when you walk down a street you may have a live music experience with someone with a busker like playing a song but that's not why you're walking down the street you know yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. I I mean, I think I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people it seems that there's a, to a lot of people it seems like live music, like going to a show is like the ultimate experience of music, yeah. you know? I think there's a lot of people that talk about it that way, which is interesting to me because I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think it's a bad way to experience music, and I think there's definitely certain musics that are better live or, you know, meant more for live performance. The ultimate example that comes to mind with that is like jazz. Yeah. But I would also say like all of my favorite experiences listening to metal have been going to metal shows. Punk is a music that's phenomenal live because there's just an energy in the crowd. So it is, I I mean, again, we're, we're just opening up into all sorts of things here, but it, it is interesting to me how, there is no singular live music experience. There's different live musics and different sorts of experiences with them. Sure, and I think one thing that you're getting at is that we should be the arbiters of what the correct way to listen to music is. That's what we've and always so, said on Ghost you know, Notes. What, what we tell you about whether you should enjoy live music is is what you should be doing going forward. Yes, correct. But yeah, I... I I think that that's something that like because when when we did the the guest episode with LK where we talked about musical theater, like a, a big part of that discussion was like the difference of being in the room, right? Yeah, and you know you can listen to the Cats original cast recording, and you should, but it's not the same as going to see Cats. Like that's that's a very different experience in the same way. Like going to see. Rob Zombie live is a fundamentally different experience than just putting on Hellbilly Deluxe. Yeah. Partly because he he will play different songs, but also like just because of the stage show aspect of it. Like and I I, I mentioned Rob Zombie because I've seen him live and he's a great performer. He was doing like kick flips off a spike wall. It was great. <laughs> that sounds that sounds exactly what I would want like what I would want yeah, from a it, Rob Zombie concert. It was it was fantastic, but like I think one of the things that I I tend to feel about live shows, or at least the sorts of live shows I enjoy, is that they're less about the music than listening to an album is, right? Yes. Like when I talk about going to a Rob Zombie show, the first thing I mentioned was kick flips off a spike wall. Yeah. Which is not something that he records on the album. It's not the music itself in quotes, which is there's a lot to unpack with the term the music itself. And I'm yeah. I'm not gonna bother, but just be aware that I know. <laughs> I think that does depend on the music because I think for improvisational styles of music. True. 
stuff that that is very improvisational, like whether it's like jam band stuff or jazz or stuff like that. I do think the music is a more central aspect than the performance, but also like yeah. improvising live is a sort of performance in and of itself. Yeah, I think that that's that's a really good point, and you're you're absolutely right that this is going to vary a lot by genre and by band as well. Like, there's an extent to which, like, I think about like folk rock bands that I've seen live, bands like Great Big C, uh, where a lot of that that was my first ever show. Great Big C was my first ever show when I was they like, were phenomenal seven years old. live. I like can't get enough of them. One of my life. one of my favorite live music stories is I made Alan Doyle laugh during one of his shows. Uh, yeah, please tell this story. I It's always amazing to me when Americans know about Great Big C at all. <laughs> well, to be fair, I grew up in New England, so... Okay. For those who aren't familiar with Great Big C, they're, they, or they were a, like a, a five-piece band, but largely sort of a trio of Alan Doyle, Sean McCann, and Bob Hallett. And then they had Chris and Murray on... One of them was bass, the other was drums. I forget which was which. But point is, they mainly like split vocal duties between Alan and Sean, and then Bob was like a multi-instrumentalist. And so me and my sibling went to this show, and we sort of, we, we were fans, and we, we felt like Bob, as the person who wasn't singing as much, was underappreciated. So we decided we were just going to shout, I love you, Bob, at random intervals. That's amazing. And Which, to be fair, Bob Hallett is great. Like, yeah. This is this is a very serious analysis of Bob Hallett. He's great. But we did that a couple times. And then like one time, I think it was after Helmet Head, Alan Doyle was about to do a song. He was about to sing the next song and he was taking a sip of water to prepare. And we just shouted, I love you, Bob. And he almost spat out the water. It was <laughs> That's great. I, I still remember that. I was like, I was like 16, 17. I don't this is a long time ago, but the live experience of Great Big C is actually a really interesting topic because it's it's a concert experience that is yeah. kind of like built to emulate some of the other live experiences that we mentioned earlier. Like, like in general, when Great Big C plays live, the feeling they're going for is like a Newfoundland kitchen party, you know, like a, yeah. a folk for, for those who don't know a kitchen party is it's Newfoundlander for a house party essentially, yeah, but yeah. like, it's a very like communal open, a real folk practice in the like folk, not in the people with acoustic guitar sense, but in the like, you know, communities making music together yeah, and participating yeah. in music. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I think that's an interesting thing about great big C is that their live experience. Part of the reason it's so good is that it's kind of emulating this thing that is, yeah. Very different from, you know, everyone sits down in their seats and listens to somebody play music. Like, it's meant to just be a big old party. It's very much, yeah, a party. And then, like, and then they'll do a break for something like the Chemical Worker song. Yeah. And, like, I, I, I mentioned that because they did the Chemical Worker song, and it was fantastic. Just, like, the room was, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. Anyone who doesn't know the Chemical Worker song by Great Big C, look it up. It's extremely good. Yes. And then you do something like French Perfume, and it's just it's just a good time. Yeah. And, or something like Helmet Head. Or Mary Mac anyway, or we're, something we're just, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I'm just listing great big C songs that I like. Can that uh, be which, you know, our next episode? Is just yeah, next episode is just C. great big C songs we like. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, no. That, that one might get too long, but. That one would certainly get too long. <laughs> <laughs> There'd just be us going through their discography. Yeah, just reading like each track. But yeah, anyway, back to live music. I think that they're, you know, one of the main things that I like in live music is that sort of thing where it is, again, more of an experience than it is. I don't want to use words like multimedia because, you know, I'm not that pretentious, but you know, it, it's, I am is the other problem. <laughs> so it, it's a multimedia experience, you know, you're there. It, it almost feels like you're in conversation and obviously like it's a performance. They're in quote unquote conversation with everyone in the audience at the same time. They're not actually talking directly to you, but it becomes, it feels like you're a part of it. It feels yeah. like you are there and you are, and in a very well, like as, as a former performer, which is a fun thing to say, I did not plan that. But um, as someone who used to be a performing musician, you do genuinely get that energy from the audience and you respond to it and you listen and 
you react to what's happening in the room in ways that you can't necessarily get on an album. I think I think another band that I've seen that is really, really great for that is I've seen Arcade Fire live a couple times. And Arcade Fire have those huge choruses, like like the chorus of Wake Up, like the whoa. Yeah. Like those those sorts of things are very much built for not just live music, but specifically a stadium audience. It's it's a bit different than Great Big C, but it's the same idea where it's the yeah. audience becomes a part of the music. The audience isn't just witnessing the music. The audience is kind of creating the experience alongside the musicians. Yeah, and this goes back to like the metal and punk stuff that you were talking about too. Like when you go to, when we we talk about like a metal show or a punk show like you're you sort of you know you talk about the bands you talk but you talk about the pit yes right first yeah. and foremost you talk about the pit because that is what that experience is and that pit is guided by the music and you know there are metal songs and metal bands that work better or worse for certain kinds of mosh pit but fundamentally when you go to a metal show that's what you're there for yeah and the fact that there is music accompanying it is not secondary, but like almost kind of secondary. Like again, this comes back to that sort of, when I was talking about like foreground music versus background music, I think that sort of complicates a lot of that boundary because it almost does become kind of background music to the actual experience of being in the pit. Yeah. More than like, you know, there to just stand and listen to the music and nod your head. You're there to participate in the creation of this communal event. Yeah, I think I I would agree with that. And I think I think the kind of the other side of that, the opposite of that if you will, is I saw Steely Dan live and yeah. that was that was just kind it's of crazy like crazy mosh pit. Yeah, <laughs> wild mosh. Man, <laughs> when the, when they started playing Parker's band, everyone just lost. No, but Yeah. But that was very much like you know, it was in an auditorium that had incredible acoustics. Everyone had assigned seating and everyone yeah. just kind of sat there and just watched a bunch of brilliant musicians play their music. And I mean, Steely Dan was phenomenal live, but I would also say yeah. Steely Dan are a band where I'm I'm glad that I saw them live, especially because it was, it was before uh, Walter Becker passed. So I was really happy that I saw them live. But also, like they're a band that are built for the studio, their entire shtick is making like making stuff sound as good as it possibly can. And no matter how good the venue you're in is, a studio is especially for, it might be a bit different if you're like an orchestra or something like that, but for like anything in the sort of like rock sphere, a a studio is going to be way, way better for just pure sound. Yeah. And this, I think sort of, leads into one thing that I wanted to talk about. And this is, I always get a little bit like anxious when I'm talking about like things I don't like. And so I want to be clear that if if this stuff does anything for you, great. Not trying to take that away. But I have never really understood the appeal of live albums. I really agree with you. There's a few live albums that I like and I, we can talk about those. But yeah. I, in general, I agree with you. Yeah, it, it's just like, for or even like live recordings, like I'm... I'm going to mention this now because this episode will come out after the video, but I'm working on a video about Bohemian Rhapsody. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about was how Freddie plays the piano. And I had read that he was sort of crossing his hands over to play that opening riff. And I wanted to double check that that was true. So I looked up a live recording and I found the Live Aid version. And like Bohemian Rhapsody is a special case because that that song is literally impossible to perform live. But even the sections that he could do and the section that he was doing at Live Aid, which was the opening ballad section, like, it just, I could tell from the recording that it would have been really cool to be in that crowd and to watch Freddie Mercury come out and just start playing that song. I think that would have been a very powerful moment. But it wasn't a moment that came across on video. Yeah. And instead what I got was him doing basically this thing off the album but like changing the melody to be a little bit easier to sing live and like not really working as well in ways that worked because Freddie Mercury was a great singer, but like it it just, it didn't have the same impact that I get from listening to the album because it was like, it had to go through 
all of these compromises that you have to make in order to do a live show. And I wasn't in exchange getting the benefit of being in the room. And again, I, if anyone out there who loves watching live recordings or loves listening to them, great, please continue to do that. Do not let me convince you that they're bad, actually. But for me, I've never got it. I think it's interesting because the, the type of live recording that I really like watching is like the kind of like faux live. Like if you've ever seen any of like yeah. Audio Tree live stuff or Tiny Desk is kind of this where it's like, yeah. it's kind of live, but it's also a very specific sort of setup. Yeah. And yeah, and Tiny Desk is sort of like, it's it's live in like the performative sense, but it's it's also a studio. Yeah, yeah. It's live in like studio, the, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's one take, but it's, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's great live in studio. Like most most studio jazz albums are recorded live in studio, you know? And it, like, yeah, yeah. That, that's something that's always interesting to me because it's like, like a, a lot of, there are some great live jazz albums, but a lot of jazz albums, like kind of blue, what you hear is just <laughs> the best takes. Sorry, I, I took me a second to realize you were talking about the album. Instead of just be like, you know, some, a lot of live jazz albums kind of blue. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, like something like kind of blue or really like yes, I, I, anything from that like post-bop yeah. era. What that is, is it is them playing live in the studio and then just taking whatever the best takes of each song are and putting yeah. them onto a record. For sure. But yeah, I think I think one of the big things, one of the big things that I struggle with with a lot of live albums is they just don't sound as good. A lot of the time, they're the recording on live albums is kind of spotty, you know, a lot of the time yeah. you're missing a lot of this big full sound that you get in the studio and then there's stuff where like it's it's interesting because one of the bands that I do I do like the song remains the same like Zeppelin's live thing, yeah. But a lot of Zeppelin part of that's because Zeppelin goes on these big improvisational things. But then also if you listen to like you know you listen to something like Stairway to Heaven or like if you listen to Zeppelin playing Achilles Last Stand live ever, it's cool. But Achilles Last Stand is made of twelve layers of guitar tracks, yeah. and that's what makes it incredible and. No matter how good at guitar Jimmy Page is, he is still one twelfth of twelve Jimmy Pages. <laughs> yeah, no, that's just math. Yeah, uh, but yeah, again, coming back to Bohemian Rhapsody, like this was a like a huge problem the band had to solve was like in their live shows they cannot do that opera section. Yeah, there are three people singing in that opera section, but like. Obviously, there are way more than that in the. So what they wound up doing eventually was they would just walk off stage during that and play a recording with like the music video and then come back for the hard rock section. And that was the best they could do to sort of give you that experience of the song live because it just was not a song that could be performed live. It just didn't work. That's like Bob O'Reilly, the tape loop that they have at yeah. the beginning, the synth loop. Th they had to just like put a loop on live there and it ran, they ran into all sorts of trouble with it too because yeah. the technology at the time wasn't really that great. I mean, one of one of the really interesting things is that like the point where the Beatles music, I mean, the Beatles music was always good. I love all yeah. of the Beatles, but the point where the Beatles music got like really, really good. Yeah, the point where they became the Beatles. Yeah, was when they were like, we're not going to make music that we can perform yeah, live. Touring. Yeah, they said, we're done touring, we're done performing live. Because especially at that time, the technology really just couldn't keep up. Yeah. They were playing stadiums full of people basically on PA speakers, like which yeah. is crazy. But yeah, they gave up the constraints of trying to make something that could be played live. And the result was stepped rock music forward so far, right? Same with the Beach Boys. Like yeah. that, that era of kind of progressive psychedelic pop stuff was a, del a deliberate kind of decision of, okay, we're going to make stuff that you can't play live. Yeah. What if we just, what if we only had to do this once, but we did it really good? Yeah. But yeah, I think that on the topic of sort of like, quote, unperformable music, one thing that I think is really interesting from a live music perspective is electronic music. Yes. Which, you know, gets, 
gets a lot of hate from people like, oh, they're just playing a laptop, they're playing the space bar, whatever. But if you go watch like actual electronic musicians, like they do a lot of stuff to make this, to make it into a like in the moment live performance in ways they really don't have to with like electronic drum kits or you see people like tapping these pads in like rhythms and making it into something that they can do as a performance in ways that really aren't even necessary, but create that environment. And again, I, I'm not saying it's bad. That that I think is a really good solution to the problem. But I, I think it's really interesting that they, A, viewed it as a problem and B, had to come up with this solution. One of the few live albums that I really genuinely enjoy is Daft Punk's Alive 2007. That live album yeah. is absolutely incredible. But yeah, I, I agree. I've never actually been to an EDM show live. A- again, it's it's another thing too, where it's like, like you were talking about with kind of Great Big C and stuff and metal shows, it's almost like the performer becomes the background and you're there to be yeah. a part of this with a community, which is is really interesting. And yeah, I the the value of someone playing an instrument, I mean, we've talked about about that sort of yeah. elitism before. But but yeah, it's it, it's so interesting because it, similar to even like a lot of like top 40 pop music. When you go to pop shows, it becomes a spectacle of song and dance and there's choreography and outfit changes and things like that because like it's a lot of what's going on like you couldn't really you couldn't really do with a live band, yeah. right? Like a lot of it isn't really that feasible, so the performance kind of shifts and it the, the yeah. focus becomes it as as a broader performance rather than just someone playing music. Yeah, and a lot of that becomes as a trade-off to get all of those intense dance moves and everything, you wind up either singing to pre-recorded tracks or having like pitch correction and everything to sort of remove a lot of the elements that we typically associate with like a live performance, those remove those imperfections in exchange for creating this incredible spectacle. And like, even though I'm calling it an incredible spectacle, I'm getting nervous that it's going to sound like I'm saying that's a bad thing. I'm not. I think that's great. Yeah. I think that's a perfectly valid way to do live music. Uh, but I think something I wanted to get into on this too is the the authenticity aspect of it. Because as always, when it comes to rock fans. Oh yeah, let's let's do authenticity. But but yeah, there's this idea that like the pop music isn't authentic. But what's really kind of funny to me is the idea that like a band can go play the same set every night and tour the entire world for six months. And each one of those performances is like an authentic special experience because the reality is it is special for you. I've seen shows. I've seen lots of shows that were really special to me that probably meant nothing to the band. You know, like I used to live in Ottawa, like Ottawa for a band that's not Canadian, especially like stopping (laughs) through Ottawa is nothing it's nowhere it's cold and they have no idea what's going on like there's there's it's it's kind yeah. of the the joke of like Mick Jagger going up and like saying every every city is like their favorite city in the world right like there's yeah. there's something again this isn't to denigrate these performances because a lot of no. these performances there's an artistry in bringing that stuff to yeah. life even when you're not in the mood yeah right there's a skill there's a talent like yeah that's impressive it's not like bad. (laughs) Exactly. And it's not like, it's something that I think everyone, I think there's a lot of kind of like glorifying, but not glorifying. Like people have this idyllic view, right. Of, of what a live show is. Of it's like, it's like musicians going out there raw and feeling it. And essentialized. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes it is that, but a lot of the time it's someone going out and doing their day job, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, Important to remember is that musicians are professionals. But I think like when you look at, again, to bring this back to like Great Big C or even like a band like Bare Naked Ladies or something like, or like even like to go in a different direction, like a jazz band, a lot of that is sort of improvisational, what you're feeling in the moment. But then you still build up this vocabulary of things to do. Like, you know, Alan Doyle might tell the same story in Boston that he tells in like Topeka and just trusts that the people in Topeka weren't also in Boston. Yeah. And so he can get away with that and he might have the same jokes. And, you know, that again, like 
if you look at, to sort of take this in a slightly different direction, but if you look at like improv comedians or, you know, just improvisational rappers or anyone, what they do is they build up this vocabulary and they build up this set of responses that they know they can do in individual situations. And that's a lot of what that performance live is, I mean, is sort of knowing what sorts of things you can say to get a reaction and then picking whichever one feels the most right in that moment. To reference a uh, friend of the show, Adam Neely, like that's exactly literally what the lick is, right? Like yeah. the lick meme. If you don't know what that is, just look up the lick. You'll you'll just, know just what it, it is. But it's essentially a Google jazz it with lick. Safe search on just to be safe, <laughs> but, you know. It's it's a jazz lick that a lot of improvisers <laughs> use. <laughs> and and the exact same way that that is an improvisational lick, there's also like crowd banter that is just something that people yeah. use all the time, you know? And Th- th- there's just these yeah, tools like, hello in the Cleveland or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you know? exactly. You you know what those sound like. And so and again, this is not to take away from the artists. I think that a lot of the skill of live performance is making a lot of that stuff, especially live sort of being the vocalist. Obviously, you know, the bassist may not have to say as many of these things. They may just have to play unless bass. it's rush. But like Unless it's Rush, in which case that's also the vocalist. <laughs> but, but like for the most part, you know, especially as a vocalist, as someone who is sort of trained in that part of the like performance profession, like a lot of that is sort of making that feel natural, making that feel like, you know, and making it natural too. A lot of this isn't like just putting on a mask and pretending to be feel whatever. It's getting yourself to feel like specific things in specific ways that allow you to sort of deliver. Cause like audiences can tell when you're fake, right? Like yeah. audiences can tell people are like, what's up everybody. I love this city. That is not going to work. People are going to be weirded out by that. You were probably weirded out by that listening to it. I apologize because you, you, again, you sort of have to be feeling some level of whatever the emotion is in order to really get it out there. Otherwise it's not going to read. It's such an interesting sort of dance where, and again, like, I don't actually think, we talked about authenticity on a recent episode and, like, how the line between, like, manufacture and authenticity is far blurrier than one might think. Yeah, it's basically nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Like, so there's nothing wrong with performers doing this, and that's part of the art of performance, but I think it just, it's it's important to remember this. When we look at live music yeah. and it's important not to, I mean, it's it's fun to look at it through rose-colored glasses and that can be the experience. But I think a lot of the time, I don't know, I think people just get very, like, live music is one of those places full of music elitism, you know, where people yeah. kind of, you know, wave around and do their measuring contests where they're like, oh, I've seen this person live this many times and this and that. And and that stuff, if you're if you're doing that in good faith and having an honest conversation, yeah, yeah that's it's yeah. lots of fun. If you're just like a fan of the artist and have seen them a bunch of times, that's great. Like cool. If someone says they're a fan of an artist and someone's like, oh well like, you know, have you seen them live or whatever, it's like you can love a band yeah. dearly and have no interest in seeing them live, you know? Yeah, like, I've never seen the Beatles live because John Lennon died before I was born. <laughs> so, I, Oh, I thought you were going to say it's because you had a personal vendetta against John Lennon. Oh, that too, that too. I, I was going to say I've never seen Beethoven live, but, you know, you, you can still go to, like, a, a symphony, yeah. but, like, you can't see Beethoven conduct, and yet we still still play Beethoven. We still like Beethoven, so. Again, none of this is to say live music is bad, and I still like a lot of live music, and honestly, some of the best experiences at all in my life, period, have been shows. Yeah. It's not the best way to listen to music. It's not the purest way to listen to music. That's where my issues with kind of the discourse around live music come in. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is that it's, like, again, to come back to some of the stuff I was saying earlier is that it it almost isn't really a way to listen to music so much as it is a way to experience music, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I think by and large, 
even when we talk about something like the symphony, where you're supposed to just sit still, listen, not clap, like, that is still an experience. That's still about being in that space. It's just a different sort of space. And I think that that gets lost when we talk about, like, oh, we're talking about, like, pop shows where everyone's doing these, like, crazy dances or, like, metal shows where there's a mosh pit. But, like, the specific environment of a classical concert is just as much a live music experience. It's just one curated around a specific set of ideas about how you're supposed to experience the music. And those ideas aren't right or wrong. They're just different. Yeah. I really like the, like, live music is experiencing the music more than listening to it. I like listening to Zeppelin's live recordings. I used to listen to a lot of Zeppelin bootlegs because what they would do is they would jam a lot. And I think with bands that jam a lot, there is something to kind of you're experiencing something new here. You know, you're listening to the song in a new way. One of my favorite performers to see live is Jack White, because whenever Jack White performs live, when he goes on tour, he doesn't have a set list. He gets his musicians to learn from a list of like, 50 or 60 songs. Some are his own, some are White Stripe stuff, some are covers, just this whole list of songs that he gets them to learn for every tour. And he calls out the songs to his musicians. Like as he finishes one song, he decides what they're going to play next. And so there is a level of spontaneity there. And in a lot of that, something that he does that I love too is like he will rework his songs live and do different versions of his songs live. Yeah. That's something that like Leonard Cohen was always doing too is Leonard Cohen was constantly writing and rewriting his songs. And whenever he performed live, he would perform the latest version of them. Yeah, whatever version he was currently working on. Yeah, Yeah. and Dylan did that a lot too, where Dylan changes lyrics and songs or changes the way that a song is played. That sort of stuff I, I I really love. And I think that's some of the appeal of live stuff. But again, yeah, there's not that many live albums that I think really properly capture that. No, I think like, Partly this comes back again to what we were saying about live recording is that like at the end of the day, the sound just isn't going to be as good. Yeah. And so you're getting a different version and it may be a better version compositionally, whatever that means, but it's probably going to be a worse version acoustically. And so that being, again, being in the room is great, but that, that spontaneity that makes being in the room so exciting is also really hard to capture and really hard to record for later because later it just won't be spontaneous. It's just one of the versions, which again is not, I, I keep coming back to this because I keep worrying that like, it sounds like I'm saying that people shouldn't like this stuff and you should like exactly the things you like. I, I'm just sort of trying to explain why this doesn't often work for me. Yeah. And some of the ones I think that that do work best for me, I think slightly differently from what you're saying, tend to be the ones that feature crowd work. Yes. I think that that tends to be really, like, again, Great Big C is fantastic at this. And I think Great Big C has some of my favorite live recordings because of it. Their live album, Road Rage, I grew up yeah, listening Road to that. Rage is great. What an album. Love if, Road Rage. If, if you've listened to us gush about Great Big C and want a place to start, Road Rage is as good a place as any to start. Yeah, Road Rage is phenomenal. But that sort of thing, again, I think... Because crowd work is designed to feel like you are speaking to each individual crowd member, I think that that comes across really well for me, at least, in live recordings. Whereas a lot of like live stuff that I've listened to, what you hear is like the audience clapping at the beginning, and then the musician plays the song, and maybe people sing along with the chorus, and then they clap at the end, and that's how you know it's live. And that doesn't really get me more hyped than just listening to the actual thing. A really interesting aspect of live albums too is even that has a lot of artifice to it. Like yeah. the the story of like Johnny Cash's At Folsom Prison album, which is a great album. A lot of people would call it the greatest live album of all time. The cheering was added in after the fact because when he first yeah. started playing, the prisoners were dead silent because they were afraid 
that if they like showed enthusiasm, the guards would beat them, you know, like they, they yeah. didn't want to get in trouble. So after the fact, they actually like after things had loosened up a little, like they got recordings of crowd noise and stuff and put it in. And it's more yeah. common than you th- than you would think crowd noise being put into live albums. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the one that comes to mind, which isn't even actually a live recording at all, is Benny and the Jets. Yes. Which is sort of, is a story about of seeing a live band. And so it starts with crowd noise that was just recorded at a completely different Elton John concert. Yeah. Because the, it was, the, the song was recorded in the studio. And so I think they mixed a couple different, like, recordings of, like, live cheering for that song, but it, it just creates this sense that you're in a live thing, but then lets it just be a studio song. That's like Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix, too. Yeah. What he wanted was he wanted it to sound like he was playing at, you know, kind of like a like smoky late night New York bar. So he added in this crowd noise. But then the reality is that the guitar tone that makes that song so good. Like, yeah. I, I know because I did a video on this. Oh, yep, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> the guitar tone that makes that song good, he could not have done live at the time. You could probably emulate it live pretty easily with pedals now, but back then, yeah. there was a lot less technology. Like, Yeah, pedals were way worse. Yeah, like, yeah, and a lot of the sound of that comes from studio post-production. So yeah. it's there's a lot of songs that I really enjoy that are faux live, you know, where yeah. it sounds live and it's meant to give the idea that it's live. But in reality, the music sounds really good because it's recorded in a studio. Yeah. And, you know, often like with Benny and the Jets, that that's on a studio album. It's not yeah. really trying yeah. to convince you that this is secretly a live recording. But it still has that like that energy of like the crowd cheering that you get from that without the sacrifices to audio quality that you get from an actual yeah. live recording. One thing that I wanted to bring up, and feel free to make fun of me for bringing this up, but Jackson Brown uh, has an album called to Running be on fair, Empty. To be fair, I already brought <laughs> I already brought up Bob Dylan. Hey, Running that's, on Empty, that's, that's the Jackson Brown I actually know, Corey. Yeah. It's a great album. The thing about Running on Empty is it's in this weird sort of liminal space between a studio album and a live album because it was an album of original songs that he wrote and recorded while touring and like some of them are recorded on the tour bus some of them are recorded at random studios on like on his tour route and some of them are live recordings too like stay for instance that was in front of a crowd and so it sort of has the And I think one of the things that, again, makes it so interesting as a quote-unquote live recording is that it is all original music, right? It's not like Jackson Brown playing the stuff off The Pretender. Yeah. Was The the Pretender, was was that before or after Running on Empty? I don't remember. I'm not sure. I think it was before because I think that was the one that really catapulted him to, anyway, not important. But it it wasn't him playing pre-written music that you could find another version of. That version of, you know... Stay or that version of what is what is the song? He does a song on there that's dedicated to the roadies, which is a really cool song. That's awesome. But anyway, that that song, for instance, that's also live. But it, there's not like some other version you can compare it to and be like, oh well. But that one sounds better, right? Because it is this is the version, and that live quality that it has becomes an innate part of the yeah work as opposed to being something that exists on top of it and sort of like, you know, when you hear Stairway to Heaven live, you're hearing them play Stairway to Heaven live instead of hearing, you know what I mean. Yes. When they play Stairway to Heaven live, like John Paul Jones doesn't break out a bass recorder, right? Like John Paul Jones (laughs) plays so many instruments on Stairway to Heaven and generally (laughs) on all of Zeppelin's best songs, John Paul Jones is playing like four instruments. Yeah. I will say the the live album that I think is kind of the pinnacle of live albums is Stop Making Sense by the Talking Heads. Sure. I I was wondering when yeah. we were going to get there. <laughs> well, well, I th- I think that's that's interesting though too because the album itself is almost inextricable f- from the film and the film yeah. is so good because David Byrne is just such an electric performer, right? Like he's yeah. he's doing such like good dancing and crowd work and is he's just 
the whole thing just like simmers with energy. And it's such an interesting thing to me because I listen to the album far more than I watch the film. But anytime I listen to the album in my head, I'm seeing the film. Yeah, which is honestly like interesting for me to hear because I think as I mentioned once on the podcast a while back, I have aphantasia. Yes. So yes. I don't see things in my head. And so that's just not an experience that like I, like when you say that, I can be like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it it's not that I can't like imagine environments. Yes. It's just that it's not visual. Yeah. But like losing that visual component makes it so that that aspect of the experience just isn't really quite as accessible to me. And I wonder if maybe that's part of what turns me off of like live recordings is that yeah, like, that is interesting. maybe part of the appeal is that like sort of thinking about what it would look like in that space. And I don't know. There's certain albums that do that for me. Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. Anytime I hear that, yeah. I think of, but again, Nirvana's MTV Unplugged is kind of live, but also kind of not, Yeah. right? Like it's yeah. it's in that liminal space where like, yeah, it was, it was a live show and there were people there, but it was also set up to be filmed and recorded as a live thing. Like it wasn't just yeah. any other show. Yeah, which is, you know, stop making sense as well. Yes, yeah, and, exactly, yeah. And even Folsom Prison too. Yeah, I think a lot of that, will result in this stuff being more optimized for these sorts of things. And again, coming back to Running on Empty, that I think is part of what makes a lot of that stuff work so well is that it is very optimized in in the case of Running on Empty, specifically musically written for those environments. It wasn't meant to be a studio thing that was later translated. And it's sort of the opposite of what you were talking about with the Beatles, where they sort of gave up on being able to perform things live in exchange for being able to do all of this cool production stuff. I think that the other side of that is you know, you can write songs that don't really call for a lot of that production stuff, and that makes them work better as live recordings and live performances. Yeah. I think the the live album that, if we're mentioning live albums that need to be mentioned, the one that is so interesting to me just as a, an artifact is Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, because... Never heard it, but... <laughs> so do you know the deal with it? I do not. I really know very little about Cheap Trick, if I'm being honest. So the thing with Cheap Trick is that, like, Live at Budokan, like, all their albums got, you know, like, good reviews and stuff like that, but did not sell well or, like, didn't really yeah. chart or anything. But Live at Budokan did. And it's not like it was, it's not like it was, like, you know, this beloved band doing a live album, like Stop Making Sense yeah. or Live at Leeds or something like that. Like, yeah. it was this band that, as I understand it, like, was kind of just this mid-tier band that hadn't really had any big hits or anything like that, that released this live album, and the live album took off and blew up, which is so, huh. so interesting. Honestly, it's kind of comparable to Frampton Comes Alive, where it's not like, it's not that Peter yeah. Frampton was already pretty, like, well-established and stuff, but, like, if someone talks about Frampton, it's Frampton Comes Alive. Nobody ever talks about yeah. Honey Pie or any of his solo work. Like, it's it's any of his studio solo work, that is. Like, it's, it's Frampton Comes Alive. Yeah. And those artifacts are always so interesting to me because... Like we've been talking about, often I find live albums to be kind of just worse or at least different versions of the stuff. But there's a couple acts where it's like, no, this is like the definitive version. And yeah. I, I I wish I had a better explanation as to why that is, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to speculate because I haven't heard the album. But I, but I get what you mean in terms of like... A lot of this comes down as off it often does to a whole like, you know, difference between different mediums thing. And I think that like the live album is a different medium from the studio album. It's a yes. very similar. It's recognizable. You can transfer a lot of information from one to the other, but it's still a different medium and it changes the experience of the work. And so when when you have a band like Cheap Trick, which is who is I think in very much set up for the live show. Like that whole, it's like 80s glam rock, right? I'm I'm placing Cheap Trick correctly. I think Live at Budokan was late 70s, but yeah, like yeah. 70s hard rock, late 70s glammy. 70s was 80s like, glam rock, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, 
but but yeah, that that sort of era of like rock music was very like it called it arena rock. That was yeah, that was the thing. It was meant to be played in stadiums, and so it makes sense that that would be something that translated really well just from a musical perspective, because part of the point was to be in those spaces. And the live album is how you get in those spaces with an album. And that's, you know, not necessarily to say that like all of that will always work better in those situations. It's just, you know, mediums and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. That's the end of that thought. Well, I, I think I would, I would also say just while I'm running through like the essential live albums, the other one that, again, is super well-suited to, like, l- the live album as a medium is James Brown's Live at the Apollo. Because yeah. everything that makes, well, not everything, but one of the big, a, l- a lot of the big stuff that is the appeal of James Brown is his crowd work. It's his riffing yeah. and and the musicians improvising and the way he kind of, like, commands and, like, orchestrates his band and stuff like that. Like, like yeah. everything that makes James Brown great is highlighted on a live album. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of, like, like funk in general, a lot of that is about the way the band controls the groove, and you have a lot more leeway on that in a live performance. Yes. You can do a lot more sort of interesting stuff in that space, and so I could imagine just doing a better arrangement there than you did in the studio because, again, the energy is different, and you're responding to the energy in the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's such an interesting kind of conundrum because I feel like you would think that there would be more good live albums. But in my opinion, there's maybe a dozen that I like really like, if that. I think one thing that is probably related to that, just speculation, but I think that making a good live album requires you to understand that you're making a live album. Mm. If that makes sense, yeah. where like, I think that, again, it's a different medium, it's a different craft, it requires a different sort of approach to make it work. And I think that a lot of quote unquote live albums are just a recording of a live show. Yes. That's and a 100%. live show is not a live album any more than a live album is a studio album. And so I think that you have to have an understanding of the intersection of those two mediums in order to make something that really works as both simultaneously. And you look at a lot of the a lot of the ones, and especially I think a lot of the best live albums, like Stop Making Sense, like The Song Remains the Same, are also concert films where they yeah. knew that they were making a concert film or a live album. I mean, Song yeah. Remains the Same is interesting because it's not actually one performance. It's no. the best bits of three performances in the same venue in like three nights in a row. They played Madison Square Garden, but it's the best bits of those performances. But again, they they knew that they were making a concert film. Same with The Last Waltz. Yeah. Like they knew that they were making this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is sort of, as I often come back to in both this podcast and my videos, a lot of sort of making great music for whatever that means, I think a lot of that comes down to intentionality. And a lot of that comes down, in the case of a live album, to intending to make something that can stand outside of the spontaneous environment of the live performance space while still trying to capture that. And that requires, or I say requires, that is significantly aided by going into that with that intention and with that understanding of what is going to make that endure through those different media. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a, a really good point. There was there was one more thing uh before we started recording, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about how your going to music school ruined live performances for you. Yeah. I think that this was a thing I was sort of realizing a couple years back is that like I have like some really foundational, meaningful live music experiences. I've had some of those in my life, but like almost all of them were in high school. Like, I think once I went to college, part of that is like, you know, you go to a, like a performance music school and you just spend so much time in performance classes that are sort of meant to be, to simulate like mock concerts that like the concert environment starts to not feel special. And then obviously, you know, you go to your friend's shows 
And like, I go to my friend's show and maybe I like my friend's band, but they're on a ticket with like five other bands that I've, you know, I've never heard of and I'm maybe not that interested in. And so I think around that time, I sort of lost interest in like going to shows to go to shows, right? Lost interest in that environment as its own end goal. And that doesn't necessarily mean that like, if I go see a really cool band, I won't be into it, but it's sort of lost a bit of its shine in a way that I, I think it's something that I'm like kind of hesitant to talk about just because like there is this sort of conception around like learning music that you will like stop making and enjoying music. And like, I, and I, I sort of like, if I'm being honest, went that direction. I don't make that much music anymore. Like in terms of like my personal life, I don't like write and record all that much, but I think that a lot of times people go the other direction too, right? Like if you look at someone like Adam Neely, yeah. when I told Adam that he was pretty shocked because that was just a completely different from his experience. And so I think a lot of people do go that other direction and I don't want to like incentivize people to not study music just in case they find out that they don't actually like music. Cause I think that, you know, that's a, it's not that I don't like music. I like music, but I think that sort of when I was younger and when I was going to a, like maybe a show a couple times a year, that was a big event. That was something special to me. And so, you know, when I went to see Great Big C or when I went to see Jackson Brown or when I went to see Rob Zombie, like these were big things that I would like plan with my friends or with my family and we would all go together and we would like be in that communal space. And then like, you know, in college, it was like, you know, I would go to like multiple performance classes a week and I'd spend like an hour sitting in a room with these bands performing this song. And it's just like, it. I don't know. It, it's not that it's not fun. It's just that it's not compelling, right? Like it's 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 just that being in that space is not in and of itself a goal. And the, the novelty has worn off. Exactly. And I think that, that that happens, you know, with anything if you do it enough. But like the thing that like strikes me when I look back at all of these foundational concert experiences that really made me excited about live music is that they all took place either during high school or very early in college. Yeah. And as sort of I spent all of this time in this space of live music and just, I think what happened, if I'm going to try and put like a simple diagnosis on it, I think what happened is I got comfortable in that space. And I think it's hard to be excited about a space you're comfortable in. Yeah. If that, the, So I think that it just became, you know, I would show up and be there at a concert all the time. And so that that was no longer like this challenging, exciting experience. It was just where I was. And yeah. So that's, yeah, it's just sort of a weird thing that happened in my life. And I don't know that I have a point to it, but it is true. But yeah, no, one other entirely unrelated, but like before we finish this episode about live music, the other story that I really wanted to tell going in is, have I told you the story of the time I fell asleep to Ozzy Osbourne? No, that's amazing. Okay, like at an Ozzy Osbourne concert. Uh, basically, it no, was not same, just Ozzy. Yeah. Ozzy wasn't not, like not, sitting by your bedside reading no, you, no. singing d- reading "Good Night Moon" to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, this was he was actually he was touring a co-headlined tour with Rob Zombie. And okay. This was this was also when I saw Rob Zombie live. When you saw Rob Zombie do a kickflip, so there's yes, exactly. I, uh, I see a thread here. We started yeah. there. We're wrapping it up exactly. here. I like it. <laughs> exactly. And they had uh, in this moment opening, which was cool. And then it was at the time a fairly up and coming metal band. I think they're more established and more well known now. Anyway, they sort of were alternating who came out first, and this time Rob Zombie came out first of the headliners. Then Rob Zombie came out, and like at at the time. I've grown on Ozzy and I've grown on Black Sabbath a lot, but like at the time I wasn't super into them. Like they were a band I knew about, yeah. but I wasn't like, they weren't my favorite. They were just, you know, okay, it's Black Sabbath. And you know, you, you respect Black Sabbath, but I, I didn't really listen to them that much. But Rob Zombie was like the dude who got me to want to be a singer. And yeah. so I was like, I was rocking out. I actually like wound up causing a fight, like two other unrelated <laughs> people to get in a fight. Because my friend and I were like standing up and we were just like thrashing around in our seats because it was like a big arena. We weren't up near the stage or in a pit or anything. We were fairly far back seats, but we were, you know, up and thrashing around and the people behind us couldn't see. So they went to stand at the railing and then the people who were in the front row 
were annoyed that now people were standing in front of them. And so they got in an argument and we, we were completely out of this. We just watched it happen. But yeah, no, I was, we were doing, we were standing up, we were thrashing, we were doing all of that. And I don't know if you know this, but doing that for like an hour is tiring. Yes. And so Ozzy came out after, and I sat down because I didn't care as much about Ozzy. And I, d- I wound up falling asleep. <laughs> That's really I d- funny. just like I passed out from like all of the energy I'd expended dancing to Rob Zombie. And I actually, I swear to God, woke up to Ozzy Osbourne just like screaming, I can't fucking hear you. <laughs> and so I, I just, I woke up and was like, oh, well, that's oh. my bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So that's, that's my favorite live music story. It's not necessarily like the best live music. Ex- it was a great live music experience. <laughs> but like I've had other really great ones, but that is my favorite story. And I wanted to get it in there. I do think that that speaks to something that I have found where the older I get, the less I want to go to shows. And yeah. I feel like a curmudgeonly old man when I say it. And maybe yeah, I am. No. But like... I have, my tinnitus gets worse with yep. age, you know, and I'm tired. Mm-hmm. Like I still, I still go to a couple shows a year. And when I go, it's someone that I'll like really, really love. And like, I think some of the last shows I've gone to, like I went to Hosier and he was absolutely incredible yeah. live. Like I've had, I've still had some really great experiences, but like I used to just go to like, just punk shows at punk bars, you know, not to see anyone in particular, just, you know, for the sake of going to a show and used to really love that. But it just, somewhere along the way, I just grew old and tired. I mean, it's a lot harder to, it's a lot harder to mosh the the closer to 30 you get or once you're past 30, Uh, I imagine. I hate that you said that because I'm 32. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm closing yeah, no, it on 30. <laughs> one thing that like on the tinnitus thing, just like for anyone listening, if you go to live shows, especially rock, metal, punk, stuff like that, just Where, wear earplugs. Like yeah, they, they, this... they drilled this into me in music school and it took me a long time to pick up, but it it's not disrespectful. They're not even going to notice. It's yeah. just, and you can still hear plenty, right? Like it's, they're very loud and they, they get through the earplug, but it's just like, Protect your ears. You only have two. You're not going to grow more later on. So just don't, just just wear earplugs. It's fine. Yeah. It's it's better. Like it, it, you can still enjoy the show and you can still do all this stuff. And it, like, again, I took, that was a lesson I wish I had learned sooner. So anyone listening to this who's like in their teenage or teenage years or whatever, who's like still like, I can, I can just go like thrash out and it, it you can, but when you're my age, you might regret that decision. So just take care of your ears. You don't get extra. I agree. I, luckily, my tinnitus isn't too bad yet, but it's yeah, not. Same, but it's not great to just have your ears yeah. ringing. And yeah, and you just you just lose parts of your hearing. And yeah, it's, it, it's one of those things where like I, I I don't again I don't want to sound like a curmudgeon. I don't want to sound like you know trying to be like your parent or whatever. <laughs> like do what you want with your life, but. Earplugs are a good idea, and I wish I had learned those sooner, yeah. Yeah, but my dad told me that when I was a teenager, and I wish I had listened to him. I Yeah, <laughs> but, like, the, the school I went to, like, the, the main concert hall, they just had, like, earplug dispensers on both entrances, and they were just, like, you could just walk up and just take earplugs because they were just like, you are at music school, you are trying to be a professional musician, please protect your hearing. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, so on that on that morose note, live yeah. music sucks. Never go to shows. Yeah, that's the conclusion. If you like live music, you are a bad person who has bad taste. Yep, that's exactly yeah. it. Again, we are the arbiters of how you should enjoy music. We've established <laughs> this. That's what Ghost Notes is. I think in general, the lessons to take out of this are that if you like live music, that's great. But yeah. also, Corey and I both find live music and especially live albums to often be overrated. Yep. Yeah. Hot takes. Yeah, no, just really scorching takes here. Yep. Yeah, well, as always, thank you so much for listening. I hope we haven't ruined live music forever for you all because yeah. it, it is something really special. And when you yeah. when you go to a show that is like, for whatever reason, that just, you know, resonates with you properly yeah. or like is a really great show or is an artist you love, it can be something really, really special. And yeah. I, I would kind of contradictory to me saying 
oh, like, I don't love live music as much as I used to and live albums are overrated. If you can get a chance to see your favorite band live, like, I know shows can be really expensive, especially these days, which is another whole other thing. But I really recommend it. And that's if you live somewhere where they come in the first place. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, like... Like that that Rob Zombie concert, as much as like I'm saying, like I don't go to shows, I don't love that. That, that Rob Zombie concert was a huge influence on my entire life trajectory, and it is a lot of who I am as an artist and as a person was because I went to that show. Yes. So don't not go to shows just because we're like, ah, well, grumble, grumble, you know, or yeah. whatever we said. I wasn't listening, but <laughs> yeah. I think that's as good a place yeah. as, as any to end it. Yeah, go to shows, but also shows are bad. That's the takeaway. Shows suck, go to them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We made a nonsense episode. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.